welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the second part of a two-part series on Wittgenstein with Dr. Rupert Reed. In the first part, we covered an introduction to Wittgenstein, his life, his approach to philosophy, and particularly his philosophy of language and the idea of family resemblances. So if you want the context to this conversation, you're more than welcome to go back and start with that episode. I think you should be able to just jump in and appreciate this episode, though, even without it. I start with providing a brief summing up, and then we get into it. So if you want the context, you're more than welcome to check that out. If you don't care for context, or perhaps just don't trust this podcast to deliver it, and you probably wouldn't blame you, um, then feel free to, to jump in here. In this episode... We continue the discussion of family resemblances, we touch on the idea of private language, but then really we're sort of asking what this means. And we're both interested in arguing that a lot of the stuff that Wittgenstein says about language, which at first glance can seem very apolitical, actually has some very deep political implications. And one direction the conversation went where I didn't think it would go, is to this idea of, is it ever possible to escape politics? Is it ever possible to carve out spaces where political ideologies and power and constructs of oppression, of racial oppression or sexual oppression, no longer exist? And you'll hear me make actually some critiques of the sort of social justice identity politics with which I usually identify myself. Just to be clear, I'm not disowning the entire project of striving for racial justice, for justice between the sexes and any other historically disenfranchised groups. I still remain fairly wedded to that. Um, what I'm offering is a much more subtle critique of the idea that true friendships between different groups aren't possible. And in its more radical forms, some social justice thought can seem to preclude that possibility. So this is a very subtle line of critique, and it's quite complicated and quite difficult. Um, so yeah, just before we do get started, one quick confession that I want to make is I normally make it a point that if a guest makes a mistake... I'll happily take it out. I always want people to feel comfortable coming on here that this isn't um, a gotcha interview. But if I make a mistake, I almost always leave it in. Now, I made a mistake on this interview, and I took it out. I confused two philosophical terms, and I just said something that didn't make any sense. And then I realized I'd said something that didn't make any sense. And I said to Dr. Reed, I was like, hey, did that make any sense? And he was like, actually, it didn't. And I was like, frack. Um, now, the reason I took it out is this is already a really challenging conversation, and I was just concerned that if I left it in and then I put a, like a footnote at the beginning or the end saying, by the way, I made a mistake in this, then um, it would just make the conversation less enjoyable and harder to follow. So I didn't want that. But at the same time, it just felt like cheating to say, well, here's what I did. I confused essentialism and nominalism. I used one word to mean the other. Um, don't get hung up on that. I took it out. Um, but 
I I also felt like it would be cheating and somehow um, someone like Tamla Summers might say I was di- being dishonorable to just take it out in edit because I would be using my power as editor to um to 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 to, to remove any potential embarrassment. So I figured the most ethical way of dealing with this was to embarrass myself in the introduction, admitting that I'd made a mistake but then just scrub it from the actual interview because I think it would just confuse the conversation. So anyway, that's what I did. And by the way, like, these are really freaking complicated conversations. Like, you, you know, it's okay to, um, I mean, at least I hope it's okay to, to get it a bit wrong sometimes. Um, I am not a professional political philosopher. In spite of some people have been emailing back me, by the way, and I I like this, but please don't do it. Um, people have been emailing me, dear Professor Buckle. Um, I I appreciate the thought, um, but I don't ever want to be pretending to be something I'm not. I'm not a professional political philosopher. I've in fact spent the last ten years doing uh, various sorts of political activism. I've worked for nonprofits, for the Democratic Party, a bunch of social justice causes. Like, that's what I've done with my life. I have a degree in this stuff, but that was forever ago. Um, I don't have a PhD. I don't teach it professionally. So I just want to be sure I'm being honest with you all about what my qualifications or lack thereof are. I did appreciate it um, when Glenn Lowry... Um, the conservative commentator on race issues who I had on, I do like Glenn, um, when he shared the episode on Facebook with, and I quote, the excellent conversation I had with the left-leaning political philosopher Toby Buckle. I, that was cute, but um, I, I, did, I did quickly reply to him that uh, it was inaccurate. Um, so I, I appreciate the thought, but uh, I always want to be honest about what my lack of qualifications are to be having some of these uh conversations. You're sick of hearing me talk now, aren't you? You're like, okay, Toby, we've already skipped ahead five minutes and you're still talking. Can we get to the guest? Yes, we can. Um, I did my full introduction to Rupert in the last show. You can check that out. So let's just jump straight in without any further preamble. Why do I use the word preamble? So vainglorious. I should just use the word introduction preamble, like the beginning of the Constitution or something. Without any further introductory editorial remarks, it is my absolute pleasure to reintroduce to you Dr. Rupert Reed. So let's start to bridge some of this onto. So I mean, here's here's why family resemblances is interesting politically. So to take the initial one he does, you know, there's no single thing um, that that tracks to the word uh, game, right? Now his metaphor, you, you you covered the quote, but just to nail it in for people who haven't heard this, because this is just an astoundingly useful tool and it's fun, is he says the meaning isn't like a discrete object. The meaning is like a set of family resemblances. So if you imagine a family portrait, you can see that red hair, say, is like a common feature of that family. 
but it won't be there for all of them. You can see that the family tends to be quite tall and thin, but, you know, there is that one uncle who has a, a big gut, and so on and so forth. Now, if you were to take any individual member of that family, which here would be analogous to any individual game, it will have some, but not all, of the common features of the family or the game. And that's fine. It's still... That person is still recognisably a member of the family, um, in the same way as something is still recognisably a game. So it's not that there is no such thing as meaning, but like you say, the meaning is in a set of relationships rather than in a discrete object. And here's where this becomes really interesting politically, is let's take a political or moral concept. So let's say um, freedom, for just the case of example. You know, the the philosophical approach, and this can be particularly um, true of libertarians, for instance, would be to say freedom corresponds to a sort of set of sufficient and necessary conditions, right? You are free if and only if dot, dot, dot. And whereas actually to get a sense of what that word is doing in the world, you want to say, well, actually, how is the word used in everyday language? And you'll find that there are elements that are common across a lot of the forms of usage, for instance, non-constraint, for instance, autonomy, um, for instance, non-domination. But those aren't present in all of it. And then there's some specific uses of the term that have quite specialised features built into it. Now, what that doesn't get you, and I think this is why, and we can move on to essential contestability and power in a minute, but I think there's a block that people really struggle with here, is they feel like there's a trapdoor under this leading to a sort of hard scepticism. As soon as I say... Freedom means a lot of different things, and getting to the bottom of what it means to be a free person or a free society is never going to be about finding the necessary and sufficient conditions. They they feel like I'm saying there's no truth to be had, whereas what you're more saying is what you're going to end up with in a mature philosophy um, and this is where we differed last time, in that I think there are elements of the liberal tradition, so I'm, I've always been taken by John Stuart Mill, that do get this self-reflectiveness about language. What you're going to get isn't so much freedom is when the government doesn't tax you too highly. That's not what you're going to get. What you're going to get is a set of relations to other concepts. And that's it. But that's not nothing either. You know, what you're going to get is um, freedom is, is in a state of development. Freedom, the, the version I've always liked, is not the, 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 when individuals come together to make a society, but when society so functions as to produce individuals. But freedom relates to autonomy. It relates to non-domination. It, it, it relates to, to the, you know, the classical liberal ideal of the reconciliation of individual autonomy with social needs. And, you know, that, that's an aversion of freedom, but it's a picture. It's a set of relationships. Um, and that that's the use you get out of it. So anyway, that that's like me that's like the first step of mapping it on to the political, in that it changes the goalposts. It's not and you see immediately what's got going so wrong with so much political debate is everyone is using the same word as if 
it was just a set of necessary and sufficient conditions. But of course, they have different necessary and sufficient conditions. So the debate is irresolvable. Anyway, I talked for a bit. Let me... Um... Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I think the first thing to say, as you say, uh, is that uh, it would be a grave mistake to think of Wittgenstein as a sceptical philosopher, on the contrary. So in particular, uh, in relation to this example we're starting to use now, uh, he is not saying, look, freedom doesn't exist. Uh, freedom is just a kind of uh, fantasy or, or a mess. Freedom is just a load of irreconcilable uses of a word. He wouldn't say that. Uh, he would rather say, look, freedom is a, is a, a concept uh, like a lot of other concepts that are important to us that actually is likely to be more um, uh, complex and hard to pin down than you suspect. And people who think it's easy to pin down uh, end up locked in interminable uh, fights uh, uh, with each other. Uh, and there's an aspect of that interminable fight, which is probably unavoidable. It's political contestation. It's people thinking and feeling differently. But there's another aspect which may be avoidable, which is which is if you start if you start to relax your assumption that freedom must be just one thing, and then disagree about what what that one thing is. If you start to relax that assumption, then you can actually start to have a more productive uh, debate rather than just a kind of clash of dogmas. So Wittgenstein would want one to look at ways in which the term freedom is actually used as a kind of uh, a starting point where we can get some purchase on it. Um, he would also, uh, I argue, um, himself be seen uh, correctly if he's seen as a philosopher of freedom. Uh, he is himself um, very interested in freeing people uh, from the way in which they are held captive, as he puts it, um, by pictures, by ideologies, by assumptions that they are unaware of, um, uh, by dogmas. And he regards this kind of fundamental intellectual or philosophical freedom as, in a certain sense, the most important kind of freedom of all. I think one connection which might be useful to some listeners here uh, would be to make a connection with um, uh, Gandhi, uh, uh, especially the uh, the early Gandhi, who uh, argued uh, famously in his pamphlet Hind Swaraj, uh, uh, Indian, which is translated as Indian self-rule, and people think that it's uh, it's about um, India coming to rule itself, which of course it is about, but it's also centrally about Indians coming to rule themselves. And what Gandhi basically says in that little book uh, is, it will be of no use at all to us to get rid of the English. Uh, if we don't uh, rule ourselves, if we don't have some kind of um, uh, power over ourselves, and if instead uh, we are uh, dominated by, for example, uh, 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 corporations and uh, and desires that they uh, foist upon us. Um, so we need to achieve, Gandhi thinks, a kind of fundamental uh, uh, freedom uh, or self-motivation uh, or self-government in order for freedom from uh, the English to be of any use. Uh, and in something like the same kind of way, it seems to me, Wittgenstein thinks that this kind of freedom, which uh, which has a, a fundamentally um, uh, deep um, philosophical uh, nature, uh, to do with not being caught up in uh, in in pictures or prejudices which you are unaware of, that this is the without this kind of freedom, there can't be any uh, real or broader uh, freedom. But it's also very important for Wittgenstein, and here's where it's all quite kind of neatly balanced uh, in my in my belief. It's also very important for Wittgenstein that one doesn't get obsessed with the individual. And Wittgenstein uh, inclines to think that most philosophers 
perhaps because you know they're uh, not very uh, socially adept usually and spend loads of time thinking in in rooms or in front of pieces of paper uh, that philosophers tend to be um, obsessed uh, with the individual uh, and to not be very good at thinking relationships to not be very good at thinking uh, collectives and part of what's going on uh, in the famous um, anti-private language, anti-private language considerations, uh, is an undercutting of that kind of um, widespread obsession uh, with the individual. So, on the one hand, Wittgenstein uh, is, uh, as I like to put it nowadays, a liberatory philosopher, a philosopher of freedom. But on the other hand, uh, this is this needs to be reconciled with a picture according to which the obsession uh, with freedom, which characterizes a lot of uh, recent uh, Western political history and a lot of the history of philosophy, is itself a problem, uh, which Wittgenstein, especially uh, uh, in his later work, uh, was aiming to uh, to undermine. So there's a. F- there's a few things to say there. I think just as a pause before we continue with this train of thought, we should just quickly define the private language thing because we've used it a million times. Could you give me just like a, you know, first year of philosophy introductory two paragraph? What, what do we what, what are you what are we referencing when we say the private language thing? Well, I can, but I want to go back to what I said earlier, which is that this stuff is in a way uh, quite hard. Right. Uh, what's what's, what's, the, what's the, the dumb people version of this? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. But, but <laughs> I know, what, I know, I know. But like, <laughs> what most people think the so-called anti-private language argument is uh, is, I think, um, pretty clearly not what Wittgenstein is actually trying to do, uh, and that's quite uh, important. Well, the the sort of the, the sort of ordinary view, perhaps the the, the mainstream view of the so-called anti-private language uh, argument is something like this, um, uh, that um, uh, there could be such a thing as a private uh, language, uh, which would mean uh, a language which only one person can understand. Uh, And Wittgenstein has an argument which shows that actually such a language is impossible. Um, And this seems to me a fundamental misunderstanding because Wittgenstein uh, is not in the business of arguing for or against positions. Uh, he's not in the business of has, adding his own ism to all the isms that have that have come before. Um, what he's trying to do is to um, critique a fantasy, not an actual position, but a fantasy. What he's trying to suggest is that quite a lot of philosophers have said things which sound as if they make sense, which seem to have, drew, have conclusions such that I could have a language just private to myself inside my own mind. But actually, this, this doesn't actually make any sense, which means there is nothing that on reflection we will be happy to call that kind of thing. There is no form of words that on reflection we will actually say, yes, that is what I mean by uh, a private language uh, and there could be uh, such a thing. So in this sense, Wittgenstein's philosophy is, if you will, fundamentally uh, negative. It's about um, questioning um, uh, inclinations, ideas, uh, phantasms, delusions, delusions of sense that we are inclined to, and not substituting for them new um, uh, positions or theories, uh, philosoph- as philosophers so often uh, have done. 
So Wittgenstein doesn't have his own sort of alternative um, to the the private language uh, fantasy. Uh, and this is part of the reason why I don't like to use the phrase private language uh, uh, argument, because it, it suggests to me that uh, that uh, the people think that Wittgenstein has a conclusion which he thinks that you can come to, which states his own position. But he doesn't actually have any conclusion. He doesn't have any position. All he's wanting to do is to try to get you to agree that something that you thought could have some substance, a kind of fantasy that motivated somebody like Descartes, for example, doesn't actually have any substance at all. Okay, so I just thought we should get that in there. Um, but let, let's go back a step to the sort of mapping this onto the political, because I think in some ways we started at the more com- well, not the more complex, but, but um, we started at the end of sort of what ought this to mean. Once we have this family resemblance view of, say, I gave the example freedom, how ought that to influence um, how we think about freedom? And we both sort of gave our interpretations of that, and we, you know, could maybe get into like um, some differences or contradictions there but but then then there's there's also and this perhaps might be a more Wittgensteinian question of just what does that mean in terms of just understanding the world and and what's actually happening um so to so to, so to map the argument through if if a word like game is just a set of relationships it's a set of resemblances and words like freedom fairness justice equality are sets of relationships this is where the sort of fundamental insight of Michael Frieden comes in, we can talk about essential contestability, is most people think political ideologies, political operatives, political parties have specific policy agendas they're trying to advance, and they craft and deploy language in that pursuit. And Frieden's basic insight is to say that's exactly backwards, that actually at its foundation, they're competitions over the control of political language. So they're, in essence, saying this is a particular branch of the family, or this is a particular member even of the family, and they're trying to prioritise that to the exclusion of other members of the family. So concretely, um, um, someone who's centrist or conservative might say equality is very important. We must have equality of opportunity. We must have equality of, um, you know, under the law and stuff like that. Um, Whereas then someone on the left might say, no, we want equality of outcome. Some people might say we want equality of need. And all of them, they're not just different policy conclusions. They're different branches of, like, if you imagine this huge sprawling Venn diagram, you're shading out a particular area and saying, that is where I stand. And that is what I want to defend. And that's necessary and important and unavoidable because... You need to you need to have some software running in your head for when you encounter a new policy choice that you haven't encountered before. So I gave this example when I interviewed Michael Fried and I said, should it be legal for Starbucks to sell human organs? We've never encountered this policy choice before. But as soon as you say it, you feel a certain way about it. And if I ask you, why do you feel that way? You'll immediately start reaching for political concepts. You'll say something about fairness. You'll say something about 
private enterprise versus state regulation. And that'll come because you have this software running in the back of your head, even if it's largely at a subconscious level, that has said, I like this part of the Venn diagram of equality, and I don't like that part. And just never mind who's right and where the right part to stand is, just noticing the strongly linguistic foundation even of all political argumentation is is a really stunning insight about the world. And that's one of my moments where, like, even if I'm not getting into exactly what Wittgenstein meant and what, what, what Gale meant with essential contestability and so on, like, once you get that view of the world, it, it's you really do feel like you've got a handle on something that even the people who are making the political arguments don't have a handle on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and um, Frieden draws directly on Wittgenstein to some extent, of course, uh, and uh, Galli, who you just mentioned, who sort of started all this off. Uh, the, the the intellectual environment he was in would not have been possible were it not for Wittgenstein. Uh, another person who's on the contemporary scene who might be worth mentioning here is uh, George Lakoff, uh, and Lakoff's um, conceptualization of uh, the, the the battle over freedom, for example, uh, and more broadly his conceptualization of the ways that uh, that metaphors uh, uh, work and uh, construct our political worldviews, uh, that would have been impossible were it not for Wittgenstein's direct influence on on Lakoff and and Johnson, his collaborator, and also would have been impossible were it not for the indirect influence by uh, Eleanor Roche, whose ideas on family resemblances uh, uh, come initially straight from uh, Wittgenstein. So some of the best of contemporary so-called cognitive science, especially as it applies to politics, uh, again, you know, Wittgenstein is the is the intellectual giant that is behind all of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to, um, this will be another one where we might want to um, do the dumb version and then if you think the dumb version is wrong. But do you want to cover essential contestability real quick? Because that's a wonderful concept. Yeah, so I, I outlined it very briefly earlier. That the basic idea uh, is that um, some of these concepts that are uh, key, well, arguably all of these concepts that are key or core to um, uh, to politics um, are uh, essentially contested, which means that they uh, it can't, it couldn't be the case that you had politics without there being disagreement uh, uh, over them. Uh, the end of disagreement over them would, in a sense, be the end of politics itself. Uh, and among these concepts are uh, freedom and equality and uh, power and um, politics or political itself. I very much like the way that um, that uh, Connolly discusses this at the uh, opening of his book, The Terms of Political Discourse, uh, where he, um, he goes into the example of political and shows how uh, argumentation over whether something is political or not, usually with a negative connotation applying to the word uh, political, is one of the central ways in which uh, political argumentation works. <laughs> Um, and I think that that's uh, basically uh, uh, basically right. Yeah. And then you've got Stephen Lukes who kind of takes this uh, further and suggests that uh, it's it's appropriate to see some of these concepts such as power as having uh, sort of different levels um, 
uh, and in a in a, a more and more um, sophisticated or ambitious uh, political uh, uh, analysis, you're going to think of more and more fundamental forms of power, such as uh, the power not just to influence a decision, but to decide what the political agenda is uh, in the first place, uh, which is, you know, moving up kind of one meta uh, uh, level. Um, that this is, and that, and that this will itself be contested, uh, and rightly so, in the sense that, for example, um, sometimes people go uh, too far uh, and say things like um, everything is uh, is completely uh, political. There's no way you can say anything that isn't, and they seem to make um, any kind of um, um, interaction between any two people in daily life into a sort of political struggle, or um, they seem to make. Um, uh, um, any intellectual claim or any factual claim uh, into a into a political um, struggle, uh, which is exactly what someone someone like uh, Donald Trump uh, wants. Uh, so there's a danger if one overplays uh, the sense in which uh, the the concept of the political can be made very very uh, uh, wide. There's a danger there that one actually plays into um, the sort of fantasy of a, of a post-truth world, which it seems to me self-evident uh, needs to be strongly opposed. It, it's actually on both sides, though, um, in that um, I'm friends, I'm sure you are too, actually, um, with like a lot of like hardcore social justice types, right? And mm. they will see power as being operative in a negative way in basically everything. They'll say, look, if you're... Um, a man interacting with a woman or a white person interacting with a black person, there's always going to be subtle primings in your head. There's always going to be an element where race and gender is impacting that conversation. Yeah. Which, so you see, Wittgenstein would, would challenge this. He would challenge that always. He would say, how do you know, going back to what we said earlier, how do you know that it always is? Isn't this actually a, a, a dogma? Um, it may be, as a matter of fact, that it always is. Um, it may well be that we should always be worrying that it may be present. Uh, it may well be that, for example, uh, we are most likely to be uh, to be just if we are vigilant uh, about these things. But it also may be that if we could keep on endlessly uh, looking and searching out bias or prejudice in that kind of way, even in, for example, a flourishing friendship, uh, that will actually destroy uh, uh, that friendship. Uh, isn't it possible, for example, that... Um, that say a white person and a black person could manage after a, quite a lot of struggle, probably, and quite a lot of a, a difficulty in sort of aligning their very different experiences, etc. Isn't it possible? Don't we want to preserve the, the possibility, at least in principle, that they could uh, achieve a relationship which was no longer a power relationship and was no longer in that way infected by politics? And I think it would be a Wittgensteinian move to say that the assumption that that cannot take place uh, is a dangerous one uh, and one which one needs to be potentially freed from. Okay, we're coming up a little on time, but I, I just this is a really interesting one, and I've got a couple of things to 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 say back to that. The first is let me give you, and again, I'm just parroting Michael Frieden here, my view on the sort of political nature of all relationships. Um, I I do think politics is part of most interactions that we have, but it might not be a negative part, and it's almost always a comparatively unimportant part. So, like you say with Luke's, there's um, power as um, decision-making, agenda-setting, and there's also power as just sort of like 
influence, right? Um, well, these elements yep. are always with us, right? Like, if, if we go get a drink together and you say, I want to go in there, and I say, no, it's too expensive, we're, we're prioritising, we're setting agendas, and we're exercising mm-hmm. power over each other, which can be in a gentle and entirely benevolent way through persuasion, right? Now, that's, that's an element of our interaction, but it's one element, and it's arguably not even in the top 10 most important elements, right? There'll be, we'll be chatting, there might be a social interaction, there's an economic interaction, we have to pay the bill, there's an aesthetic component, we might get a craft beer or something, right? And the the, the political might be like number 15 on the list. It's there, but... It, 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 it's there, but it doesn't mean you always have to be bringing it up, right? But one might say this, one might say that the politics you're talking about there, it might only be a small P politics, if I may use that expression, rather than a large P politics, right? There, there might not be any presence of uh, any kind of broader sort of um, uh, ideological freighting, uh, any kind of adherence to uh, to an ecological vision or uh, a socialist vision or uh, a fascist vision or anything like that. Well, so this is where, um, I forget who does it, but the idea of thick and thin ideologies comes in. Um, I know Frieden uses it, but I don't think he originates it. Um, but there's there's thin ideologies, which might be something like um, um, e- e- ecology or green politics is a good example. It's, it's anchored to a set of things, but it doesn't necessarily penetrate us going for a drink, right? There's then thick visions, which are like conservatism, liberalism, stuff like that, which have both both the the capital P and the lowercase p political elements of them. Um, And I don't know, I I think, and this brings us on to the social justice side of it, is it the case that there's always going to be gender or race components to any relationship? And there I just sort of say, I don't know. It might be true. It might not. I'm perfect. So if you say that, you see, I think... If you say that, I think that, that, that then you're you're close to Wittgenstein, because what Wittgenstein is wanting to do is not assert his own dogma. He's wanting to put into question uh, the the received uh, dogmas. And in this sense, it seems to me that certain versions of a sort of um, of a sort of ubiquity of, of politics thesis, or of a sort of uh, identity politics uh, strong thesis, certain versions of those. Are, would qualify in this sense as dogmas. Wittgenstein is not necessarily wanting to say, look, it has to be the case that there is a space of freedom for, uh, in, say, true friendships from, from all politics. What he wants you to do is, is only the negative, is to say, if you simply assert up front that there cannot possibly be such a space, then you are most probably uh, the victim of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, of an ideological certainty to which you are not entitled. Yeah, and that's that's. I mean, so in a bizarre way here, I'm kind of influenced by Michael Oakeshott of all people. In that, if you accept as a sort of loose metaphor that in any human interaction there's going to be all sorts of layers, there might be a friendship, social layer, an economic layer, an, an aesthetic layer. That there will be an element of power. Um, operative, there'll be a linguistic element. And yes, there might always be, you know, a gender element, say, 
something like that. There's always a danger in just taking one of those layers and analysing everything else through the prism of that as if that was the fundamental thing that's going on, because there probably isn't a fundamental thing that's going on. People are complex and messy, and our understanding of ourselves, much less of our interactions with each other, is very incomplete. Um, And where I follow Michael Oakeshott on this, if if on nothing else, is he says these political belief systems are sort of like spectacles for for viewing the world, and the world's going to be different in the different sets of spectacles. But you're always going to kind of look like a jackass if you only have one set of spectacles and you only ever have one way of seeing the world. And while I'm generally sympathetic to the concerns of social justice, I think where people get frustrated is when that's people's only mode of analysis, when all they can ever notice about the situation is the gender power dynamic or the race power dynamic. Yes. Like I say, you may well be right, that might always be there. I'm sceptical that it's always the most important aspect. Um, But if that's the only mode of analysis you have, it's just going to get old after a certain amount of time. Does that make sense? It does. And uh, as I say, I think a Wittgensteinian perspective here would say... um, would be sceptical of the thought that it must always be there, would be sceptical of the necessity claim, and would be worried that that claim will, uh, will get in the way of the possibility, which which may be difficult to achieve. It may be unachievable, but it shouldn't be ruled out a priori, that people are genuinely able to uh, to understand each other, that people are genuinely able to, to, to be together, that people are genuinely, genuinely able to overcome difficulties that separate them. And now we come back to what I was saying before, that one of the things that I think is very important to Wittgenstein is that unlike most philosophers, he is very much a philosopher of our being with uh, uh, each other. And, and here you can tie him in to some extent with some recent-ish uh, uh, continental uh, philosophers, starting with uh, uh, starting with uh, with Heidegger, um, that Wittgenstein wants to emphasize the way that we are not separated from each other, stuck, it, stuck each in our own skulls, in the way which has been such a common vision in the history of philosophy, and arguably is at risk of being repeated again uh, in, for example, contemporary uh, identity politics under some versions of it. Can I just give you one final quick quote from the Philosophical Investigations, because it relates directly to what you were just saying, Toby, about um, about the way that people get stuck looking at the world in one way. And this is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful remarks of, of everything in the entire book. Uh, so Philosophical Investigations 103. The ideal, as we think of it, is unshakable. You can never get outside it. You must always turn back. There is no outside. Outside you cannot breathe. And then Wittgenstein responds to this critically. Where does this idea come from? It's like a pair of glasses on our nose through which we see whatever we look at. It never occurs to them to take, sorry, it never occurs to us to take them off. Uh, And that's what Wittgenstein's philosophy is all about. Having the power to take pairs of glasses which we've forgotten we are wearing off. That is a metaphor through which I think you can sum up the whole thing and the fundamentally, uh, as I see it, liberatory nature uh, of his uh, philosophizing. Should we should we end with where this has um, has has led you in terms of your personal uh, political beliefs and your activism? Because oh, I'll, I'll tell you one final thing. Um, you've been generous with your time. When when I had you on the first time, I've got enough of a following now um, that I do get complaints. And I, I was told I hadn't objected strongly enough to your dreadful collectivism that you had uh, 
uh, brought on in um, <laughs> in the first show. And th- th- there probably is a bit of a gap between us here in that, as we did the first time, I still am sympathetic to a number of um, figures in the sort of liberal tradition. But I mm. do. But th- then I feel like the people who were complaining about your collectivism sort of in all likelihood, probably had a view of the world as just this Newtonian machine of atomized parts. And, um, you, you know, people are just um, pure individuals. And if society exists, yeah. it's just the product of individuals. Yes. Whereas I do value individualism and individual autonomy in a sort of classically liberal way. But you have to always view that as a construct of society. Society produces individuals, not not the other way around. Anyway, mm. that, that's sort of my view and how I think about it. But yes. your your personal politics does it does emphasise the collective to a stronger degree than is the norm in our society. I'm not caricaturing you there, right? Uh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think that. Um uh, individualism is hegemonic uh, in our society, and I think it's uh, it's highly dangerous. I should emphasize that I think it's a pseudo-individualism um, because uh, our society actually doesn't even encourage people to genuinely be individuals, to genuinely strike out in their own way. There's a kind of ersatz individualism, uh, the individualism of, uh, of, the, of adverts, uh, for example, uh, where everybody thinks they're fulfilling themselves uh, and everybody uh, ends up uh, allegedly fulfilling themselves uh, in pretty much uh, uh, the same way. Uh, so I don't think we we have a. I think the one thing that our society thinks it's good at uh, creating individuals, it's actually really terrible uh, at. Uh, and yeah, I want to challenge that uh, hegemonic pseudo uh, individualism. Uh, and in doing so, I believe I'm following Wittgenstein. For example, I'm going to give you one more quote. I promised I get the last one, but I'm going to give you one no, final. I, I, I like Wittgenstein quotes. We can one. do we can do Wittgenstein quotes. Yeah. So this is from the the heart of the anti-private language considerations. Uh, Wittgenstein says this, um, what sort of issue is this? Is it the body that feels pain? How is it to be decided? What makes it plausible to say that it is not the body? Well, something like this. If someone has a pain in his hand, then the hand does not say so unless it writes it. And one does not comfort the hand, but the sufferer. One looks into his face. Or a more literal translation would be something like, one looks him in the eye. Um, and what I take that last bit to be is a, is a powerful kind of, a really kind of emotionally powerful uh, reminder of the way that we can be with someone uh, in their suffering. But we're not, we're not, as I say, isolated from each other, stuck in our own skulls. But suffering, pain can actually um, bring us together. And we can be genuinely sympathetic uh, with another and we can care for them and love them uh, in their suffering. And that's a profound way, I think, which we sometimes forget, uh, in which we're not the isolated individuals that our society pretends we are. But I just want to uh, remark also that as I've tried to stress during this interview, Wittgenstein is also somebody who is profoundly interested in our being uh, intellectually free uh, and in helping to uh, free us. Uh, And in this sense, uh, Wittgenstein is is very, very keen on us striking uh, against uh, the the ideologies that are uh, hegemonic in ways that may be, at least initially, somewhat individual. So there is absolutely no dogmatic opposition to 
uh, to um, individual insight or enlightenment or difference uh, in Wittgenstein's philosophy, uh, nor in my uh, philosophy. Instead, I think there's there's rather a kind of fine uh, balance here. Uh, and I hope that I bring that balance into my own uh, uh, work. So, for example, I've just published this book um, called uh, A Film Philosophy of Ecology and Enlightenment. Uh, with Routledge, where I'm looking at a bunch of films from a, a broadly uh, Wittgensteinian point of view and trying to understand those films as uh, works about us in our collectivity, works about us in our ecological setting, but also works about us um, as we try to uh, free ourselves from um, from oppressions, from uh, mutual uh, misunderstandings, from uh, hegemonic uh, uh, philosophies. Uh, and that's an example of the kind of way that, that I try to bring uh, uh, Wittgenstein into a, a broadly um, political perspective uh, upon the world. Because he wasn't, when people think about Wittgenstein, they don't um, think politically about him. But you've, that's almost your thing, right? You've, you've, you've done a lot about thinking. Not like so much what Wittgenstein would think politically, but what that, that this way of thinking about the world leads to. Yes. Um, and including, I've, I've uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've sought to argue that I think it's plausible to say that Wittgenstein's own uh, experiences, for example, of anti-Semitism, for example, of the rise of Nazism, um, uh, probably had some influence upon the way in which he increasingly put uh, pain and suffering and our orientation uh, towards it uh, at the heart of his philosophy. Okay, um, that was good. Um, should we should we should we wrap up? Any any words in closing? Anything you think um, you want to call our attention to that we missed in in that trip from Wittgenstein, language, power, politics? Um, yeah, any final words? Well, no, except really perhaps just to say that I hope people have got a sense from what we've been talking about that if they thought that Wittgenstein's a sort of um, just a kind of wordsmith or someone with quite kind of narrow uh, interests or narrow relevance. I think that's a complete misunderstanding. Uh, Wittgenstein himself was a was a deeply kind of uh, culturally rich figure, uh, but even more so in terms of the way that one can apply these tools that we've been talking about in this interview. I think it's very very wide, and I think that's quite exciting. I use the concept, his concept of objects of comparison, for example, in my uh, in my new book on film and philosophy. Uh, I suggest that we should think of some of the great films of our time uh, as objects which we which we, as it were, set alongside uh, the world. We, we compare the world as depicted in these films to the world as it actually is. And that comparison could redound uh, in either direction. It could redound to the advantage or to the disadvantage of our world. And one of the things I, I really hope is that um, a proper understanding of Wittgenstein's philosophy, if you put it in the right place, if you put it in the right context, can actually help us to be better placed to change our world for the better. And I guess that's part of what I try to do with my life. Wittgenstein really is your dude, isn't he? He's like... He is, yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. your guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, um... Rupert, thanks so much for coming back on. Um, anywhere, I mean, I'm guessing people can get the book on Amazon, and I'll link to it. But anywhere you'd yes, but I must warn people: the book is uh, is uh, it's only in hardback at the moment, and it's and until it appears in paperback, it, it's ludicrously expensive. So uh, uh, Routledge may not be happy with me saying this, but I recommend that uh, if you want to get a film philosophy of ecology and enlightenment, you get it through your library. 
that's that's uh that's some uh, also greener. socially minded advice. Yeah. Or by the time the interview is out, the the paperback. When's the paperback coming? Well, it'll be out sometime in twenty nineteen. Okay, so maybe by the time people hear this, there'll be a paperback version. And if people want to follow you, they should go what to your website, Twitter. Oh yeah, it's it's very easy to find uh, my stuff. Um, to follow me on Twitter, my philosopher uh, account, which has lots of other stuff as well, but it has my philosophy stuff on it when I. When I philosophically tweet, is um, at Rupert Reed R E A D. Okay, cool. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Coming up next week, I'm going to get back to my series on libertarianism. So we'll do the rest of the series as was the feedback in one block. So I'm thinking that'll be another one, possibly another two episodes. I'm going to be putting together all my recordings for that this week. So for those of you who haven't checked it out, I'm doing, just by myself this time, an ideological history starting in the 1800s and working through to the 1960s of the development of the ideology of libertarianism, paying particular attention to the context in which it arose and how it competed for the control of political language with other ideologies such as liberalism at the time. So please do feel free to go back and check out the first part of that. The next part will be out uh, next week. After that, Professor Dale Martin, the postmodern New Testament historian, will be back on the podcast. And, you know, I've been thinking we haven't offended enough people on this podcast, so we'll be taking on what the New Testament says about gender identity. And, um, was Jesus gay? and what view of sexual ethics or lack thereof is expressed in the New Testament. Just because, like I say, I feel there's people out there who haven't been offended by this podcast yet, and I really, you know, we need to we need to make an effort there. Um, no, I kid, I kid, Doc. Um, I kid. Um, it is an absolutely fascinating discussion about how the ancient mind perceived homosexuality and heterosexuality and ideas of a gender spectrum and of transitioning gender that I'd never even thought about before, and I hope you enjoy that. So that's coming out after the Libertarianism series. As always, just real quick, if you do enjoy the podcast, please consider sponsoring us on Patreon. It's really easy to do. You just go to patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, or you check out our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And you know, it's completely up to you what you donate. I've been suggesting a donation of $2 an episode. So if you enjoyed this episode as much as you would a cup of coffee or something like that, consider sponsoring it on that basis. And this podcast is made possible entirely through the support of listeners. We don't have any corporate sponsors. We don't do any advertisements. Because I really dislike, I, I, I don't know if you do too, I really dislike listening to a podcast and then it's like, we'll be right back, but now we're going to tell you about this underwear and it's the most comfortable underwear and you think, you know, you're, and I'm just listening thinking, you're, you're, you're one. I'm now going to have like forgotten where my place was in the conversation you were having. And two, you've just totally shot your credibility because, you know, you were really passionate 
about telling me, Ben Shapiro, who tries to sell me vitamin supplements and, like, literally essential oils at one point, I seem to remember. Snake oil salesman is a term for a reason, like how passionate you are against socialism. And then you interrupt to tell me how passionate you are about the the survival kit and the canned meals for when the end of the world happens, which apparently is a fear for your listeners. So, advertisements are icky. Instead, every now and again, I just nag you all to give me money. I think that's a fair trade. If you'd rather we do advertisements, we can, but I prefer to just nag you all to give me money every now and again. So, if you have an extra $2... I would, and by the way, I'm not just ripping on Ben Shapiro here, like, I mean, I am ripping on Ben Shapiro, but I actually, unlike a lot of liberals, I actually listen to a lot of conservative media, so I listen to Ben's podcast at least once a week, and I'm amazed by how often, like, it's interrupted to sell me goods, and I'm just sitting there thinking, this is the audience you have? It's crazy. Your audience is interested in... Supply kits for your bunker where you're going to go in after the nuclear apocalypse. Home defense guides. Little placebo pills that make you think your workout works better. Like, this is this is who you're marketing it to? I don't know. I just find it absolutely fascinating when I listen to conservative media, the types of products that they're hawking me. I find it, ab- like, like, I'm not even critiquing it. I find it genuinely fascinating. But it does undoubtedly spoil their shows, both from an aesthetic and a credibility component. I feel like the the, the conviction that I'm listening to a serious person just kind of drifts away. Um... And I don't mean even to single Ben Shapiro. We're going to get a bunch of hate mail now about how dare you go after Ben Shapiro for being a snake oil salesman. Let me tell you, I bought his supplements and they really improved my sex life. I, I shit you not, I'm going to get that email. Anyway, I think that sort of thing spoils podcasts. Please give me money so I don't have to do it. Thank you. And by the way, we've got loads of great content coming up. Um, the Libertarian series, Dale Martin's back on, and I'm going to introduce a bunch of new guests. You can follow me on social media to get the first look at that. Okay, thanks for listening. I appreciate all of the listeners we have, really. I sometimes have to pinch myself just looking at like how many people listen to the show and thinking, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So I'm genuinely grateful for everyone who tunes in. So thank you. And I hope to see you next week.